Just a little bit of a cannibalism out in the <laughs> out in the desert. CSI Simpson Desert. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Habitat, the Cosmos podcast about ecosystems and the things that live in them right around the world. I'm Matthew Ward-Ages and I'm a journalist at Cosmos. And I'm Jacinta Bola. I'm also a science journalist at Cosmos, but I also went foraging in a pine forest on the weekend and found a bunch of saffron milk caps. So, you know, life's going pretty well for me. And that's an appropriate thing, Jacinta, for a podcast, I guess, about habitats and the things that live with them, because, you know, often we talk about habitats being places where animals live, but um, fungi have homes too. (laughs) Fungi need homes. They have to exist. Um, But yeah, like habitat, we're going to be talking about all sorts of life. So I'm very excited to see what we've got in store for this week. And I'm glad that you're here with us because, I mean, you know, Usually mycologists are recommended as the people that should be going out there looking for mushrooms. <laughs> are you saying that I shouldn't be no, looking no, for I, mushrooms, Matt? Well, I know. I, I don't know what your level of expertise is, Jacinta, so I'd worry you a little bit about you going out there and, you know, picking the wrong thing out. But uh, no, I'm excited that you're with us. I am excited that you're with us. Now. That's fair. I wouldn't recommend it for any of our listeners, but um, I am quite fine with it and I didn't no, die. That's, so that's a, that's a big that's, win. That's big win. good. And I have a guest for us today, but not, not a Ooh. fungi guest. He might be a fungi though. He might actually be a fungi to talk. I hope he's a fungi. Yeah. Uh, more of a scientist type though. So not, um, not going to be like a Harrison Ford-esque, you know, ranger type. You know, it's a, ha- it's a habitat-based, environmental-based podcast, but we are, we're certainly more in the realm of maybe a Sam Neill type um, level of, of scientist vibe that I think we're going for here, expertise in a particular field. I think Sam Neill is better than Harrison Ford anyway, so I'm all for this. Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, so the thing I wanted to throw out to you before we introduce our guest is a bit of a Habitat curveball for our first episode of Habitat. So wait, we're not talking about Habitats? No, 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 no. We are, of course, talking about Habitats, but, well, okay. Tell me, Jacinta, what you think of when I ask you to describe to me what comes to mind for you when when we talk about animal Habitats. What do you visualise? Oh, okay. Well, it was obviously the pine forest I was in on the weekend. There's the beautiful tropical rainforest in Queensland that I grew up in. Mm. You know, long walks along the Yarra River, seeing Salvador the seal. That's both marine and forested, as far as I'm concerned. And these are very much, uh, from what I know about you, places that you've lived as well. (laughs) Yeah, look, I I, I go from my environment and I am my environment. As we all are, mm. and I complete, and I look, you know, I completely get that, you know. And if you ask me the same question, I'd say the same sort of thing. I'm thinking lush green forests, mm. you know. I'm a city slicker. Uh, I grew up in an urban sort of environment myself, and and when I think of habitat, I think of you know, big trees and lots of green and that sort of vibe, or you know, the ocean. Fish live in the ocean. Whales live in the ocean. Yep, that's a habitat. For sure. But I'm gonna th- I'm gonna throw this at you instead. Dry, no rain really brittle sort of plant life and lots of sand. Yeah. Well, I guess like you don't think about it to start with, but if you look at Australia on a map, right, like it's mostly red, it's not green. Like that's right. I was lucky enough to go to the Square Kilometre Array last year and I was blown away by the amount of flowers and shrubs and just like stuff that lives on that really red, dusty, dry land. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I've driven up through the red center and, you know, it is red dirt everywhere, but there is still life that lives there. And that's why today we're talking somewhat about arid landscape, arid habitats, deserts, 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 deserts. The things that live there, (laughs) they are not dead. They are not dead environments, contrary to probably a lot of, I guess, popular belief, you know, things live in the desert. Yeah. I'm excited. I mean, I think that's a really great way to start because there's a lot of it. Australia is full of it. And I Mm. think we just don't really think about it enough. So we are joined by Cameron Dodd. He's a PhD student working at the University of Western Australia and the WA Museum. And he is a specialist in Dazarids, specifically one particular type, which I haven't heard of before I learned what his specialty was, and I reckon a lot of people haven't heard of that either. <laughs> G'day, Cam. G'day, how are you going? We are good. All right, Cameron, we've got to ask. First things first, we're talking about these really, really arid parts of Australia, so they're not dead. We've discussed this. What are Australia's arid deserts actually like? Well, yeah, I think a lot of people, when they think desert, they think kind of like a Sahara type environment where it's just massive sand dunes, very little life, very few plants. Um, But Australia's arid zone only has a very small amount that's kind of mobile arid. Australia's arid zone is completely transformed when the rain comes along. You get so many gorgeous flowers and little shrubs and forbs growing. um, And it provides, you know, an amazing Mm. habitat for a huge variety of things, which a lot of people just have never seen, never heard of. They're not animals that are often kept in zoos. They're not animals that many people have seen. And yeah, I think there's really so many people have no idea what lives out there. And it's really, really important that we do know. Have you ever heard of a kultar, Jacinta? No, I think it sounds kind of like a type of weapon, like a katana. Is that? A weapon? (laughs) No, not a katana. You, you, you watch very different things to me, I think, Jacinta, so I can't validate that. But, well, well Kultar, a Kultar is an animal and Cam is a chap that knows a lot about them and that's why we've got him here. Okay, so Cam, all right, I'm picturing a long animal. It's black and white. It's got a long neck, has lots of different sounds. Wait, no, that, that's a kitar. I'm thinking of a kitar. So, <laughs> Cam, set the record straight. What does a kultar look like? Easiest thing to do is to try and to get someone to visualise something that they do recognise. So if someone, if someone knows what a hopping mouse looks like, probably more likely that they've seen them in you know zoos or on TV and stuff, it kind of looks like a hopping mouse. And it kind of is a marsupial version of a hopping mouse. They have very long legs a very long tail with a brush on the end, so like bristled bristled hair at the end of their tail. Uh, and they have massive ears, really, really big ears, far bigger than looks reasonable. Like it, it looks, they look almost ridiculous how big the ears are in some of the specimens. Sounds cute. I like it. They're gorgeous. They're very, very cute. I please hope everyone listening, Google a photo of a Kultar and you'll see how absolutely adorable they are. I am Googling one right now. And it, they do look very cute. They, they, you know, we're talking plush animal type, give it to your newborn type, you know, vibe, I think, with, with this. So, yeah, like, I mean, big eyes, big ears, big everything, except it, it's clearly just a very small animal. Is that, like, how, how big would these grow to? Yeah, they're very small. So they're around 20, 22 centimetres in length. Around kind of half of that is tail, half of that is the body length. And then maybe, say... 
I don't know, three centimeters across, two or three centimeters in kind of body height, um, but their legs are very long. So their legs are as long as their body is high. So they're kind of up off the sand, running around kind of suspended above the sand with their massive long legs. Um, and <laughs> it's making it sound like a little like Frankenstein's monster. He's got long <laughs> legs, big ears, <laughs> and a long tail. <laughs> they do look a bit, yeah, a little bit crazy. Interestingly, when people first discovered them, they ran around so fast that they assumed that they hopped like a kangaroo, like a hopping mouse, like a, like a jaboa. They just assumed, well, it's going this fast. It must be hopping on its massive long back legs. Um, but when people actually uh, filmed them with slow motion cameras and slowed it down and looked at how they were running, uh, they don't run like that at all. They run on all four legs, more similar to like a gazelle or a cheetah kind of thing. They run with their two legs in front of them, pull forward, bring their back legs forward. Very similar to how the Dunarts run, even though they have so much longer legs, they still run in a similar way. That's so cool. I feel like that, like that to me, I've got in my head now, I've got a tiny little cheetah with giant ears <laughs> running through the deserts of Australia. Yeah, they're similar to cheetahs in other ways as well, in that Dazurids and small Dazurids particularly are absolutely voraciously aggressive predators. They are vicious and will just absolutely devour anything they can find. Um, for something like a kultar, generally they'll be looking at um, insects, so uh, or insects and other invertebrates, so spiders, cockroaches, um, beetles, um, potentially ants and smaller things like that, and they will just pounce on them and rip their heads off and completely devour them. So don't give it to a newborn then, is what you're saying. <laughs> Well, they would probably want to hurt the newborn. They're probably a little bit small to do any real damage, but they would definitely, they would definitely give it a go. Um, I've handled Dazurids in the field, and they're very bitey. Even though, you know, there's this tiny little mouse the size of, you know, size of your palm, they don't like being touched, and they want to they wanna let you know about it. I should put in a disclaimer here that uh, we do not recommend providing uh, any marsupials to newborn human children. For any entertaining purpose. <laughs> Even if they are really cute. <laughs> no. <laughs> Even if they are adorable. Uh, yeah, probably best to avoid that. So, okay, does it hurt when you get bitten by these small, small little animals? So I've, I've been bitten by a lesser hairy-footed dunnart, which is relatively small, kind of similar size other than the really long tail um, to a kultar. And it, it didn't hurt at all. It really, I'm so much bigger than it it did not hurt at all. That he was really he was he was aggressive. Like he was trying to bite me, but it was it was fine. They're far too small to actually cause any real damage. But if I was around his size, yeah, I would be very worried. Do you get these specimens out in the field? Like where do they where do they range from? How do you how do you come across them? So Kultar are known for being very, very hard to catch, which makes it very hard to know exactly where they live, what environments they live in, and how widespread they are. Um, so generally, if you're catching Dazirids in the arid zone, the most common method is using uh, pitfall traps. So it's basically a long plastic tube dug into the sand. You run a kind of mesh fence along and running across the hole, and you're kind of trying to funnel the animals into this tube, basically. And then they drop into the tube, there's sand at the bottom so it's still nice and soft, uh, and they drop into this tube and then, 
and then you come along and you can you can grab them and then you can have a look at them you know do whatever you want to do take genetic samples take measurements and then let them let them be on their way uh, but cultar can jump out of those so those sort of traditional methods are not very useful for catching cultar you can use Elliot traps which are like little metal boxes uh, with some bait inside the animal goes inside they step on a trigger and it closes closes the door behind them We often hear about marsupials and, and native Australian animals living in, in remote parts of Australia, particularly these arid places, being subject to lots of predation, lots of um, introduced species that go after them. Is that the same here with, with Kultar? Are they facing similar sorts of threats to their, I guess, conservation? Yeah, so in terms of how well populations are doing, it's very hard to tell because they're very hard to catch they have very widely spread populations, very kind of low density populations in very, very remote areas. So doing kind of any traditional surveys to figure out, okay, how many are in this area and how is that changing is very, very hard. But you can say with relative certainty that they are definitely subject to predation from feral cats, from domestic cats, from foxes. Those are kind of the main predators which are super, super harmful for a lot of small mammals in Australia. Yeah, Kultars, I mean, they're ferocious, but they're very small. I don't think they'll be able to handle a cat. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, you know, they're very they're very ferocious and very fast for an animal their size. But yeah, unfortunately, they just really struggle to deal with cats. What is it that gets you up in the morning to, to do this sort of work? Because I would imagine that, you know, looking at the threats that face these sorts of um, very small, um, very rare and not particularly well-known animals probably, I don't know, brings a, a bit of a sense of responsibility with it. What gets you going in the morning, camp? I think the big thing that's drawn me to life in the arid zone is how little we know about it and how little has potentially already disappeared. There are several species of arid marsupials which are only known from subfossils that are, say, you know, two, three hundred years old. So we know they did exist prior to European colonization, but they didn't even last long enough for Europeans to describe them. Like they are not known to modern European scientists because they'd already gone extinct. We'd already had that big of an impact on the environment that they'd completely disappeared. I suppose that's what's drawn me to researching these really poorly known species is that potentially we're losing species without even realizing it. If we don't know what's there, we don't know we don't know to protect them we don't know what threats they're facing we don't know what we can do to help and without question there are species that have disappeared that we will never know about there are no good records of them they haven't been properly described you know they're potentially only known by you know potential um, indigenous groups that live in the area that may have knowledge of that prior to european um, settlement and i think it's really sad yeah absolutely um, it sounds like you've got your work cut out for you. There's a lot going on there to be able to get done. <laughs> um, before we go, I wanted to ask you, like a lot of us don't get to go out and do these kind of fun things in the field. What was your best experience? What's your favorite day out in the field? Tell us a, a fun story about something that's happened. I can tell you a slightly gruesome story. <laughs> yeah, no, gruesome, gruesome's good. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I was out in the Simpson Desert um, looking to catch small desiurids and small rodents. Uh, and so we have these little pitfall traps where you open them up overnight, 
the animals are mostly nocturnal, so they'll be running around at night. And then early in the morning, you go and you check and see what's there. And occasionally you'll get more than one individual in the same trap, which for very aggressive predators isn't ideal. Well, it, it might be ideal for them, though. <laughs> it's handy for them, but if you're the smaller of the two stuck in the trap, you're out of luck, unfortunately. One I saw where there were two Dunarts in the same trap, and one of them was clearly hungry. We found them with one fairly well-fed, satiated individual, and then another individual that had basically been scalped. Like, the entire top of its skull was just completely exposed and red and bleeding and yeah very very gruesome and these were two animals of you know very similar size they're not put off by how big their kind of opponent is they'll if they see something they want to eat they they tuck in just a little bit of a cannibalism out in the (laughs) out in the desert csi simpson desert (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, there's not a lot of food out there. And often, um, you know, you've got to get what you can find. And if you find, you know, potentially another food trapped in with you, those things can happen. Oh, thank you for joining us today, Cam. It really has been a a fascinating dive into, well, I mean, uh, the savageness of life in Australia's desert regions. and um, But also the kulta, you know, an animal that I didn't know about and certainly know a lot more about now. Um, It was great having you on board yeah thank you so much it's been great to chat to you i really think you know barely anyone knows about so many of these species i really hope a few people google the word kultar and learn a little bit more about them i hope they do too i don't know that we needed to hear all that um all the gory detail (laughs) i think the scalping bit might actually stick with me forever i'm not sure i'll ever be able to get that little tiny cute mouse that's being scalped out of my brain poor 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 animals poor animals eating each other it's not good it's a mammal eat mammal world out there (laughs) it is it is it is well we'll be back next time with another episode hopefully a little bit less uh in your face (laughs) gore of habitat taking a look at planet earth and the things that live within it and you know i think the next one just that we'll do will be a little bit less you know voracious that's that's something that we'll, we'll try and aim for yeah it's the problem with small little cute mammals you think they're cute and then they get you they get you in the night when you're in a trap with them good good australian horror film material there for sure absolutely okay well we'll see you next time This episode of Habitat was recorded at the Royal Institution of Australia in Adelaide on Ghana country. Our guest was Cameron Dodd, joining us on Wadjuk country in Western Australia. Production by Helen Karakulak. Habitat is a podcast from Cosmos, Australia's premier science news service and magazine. Discover more science at cosmosmagazine.com.